2020 was the first full year of Jonathan Hickman era X-Men comics following the summer 2019 House of X Powers of 10 status quo reconfiguration and the launch of the Dawn of X. We started the year early in the formation of Krakoa, the mutant island, with Professor X, Magneto, and Apocalypse convening with world leaders in Davos, and we ended the year after the Tennis Swords event in the transition from the Dawn of X into the new era known as the Reign of X. All in all, 2020 was a consistently interesting year for all things mutant, with some fantastic highs and unquestionably moments that never lived up to the impossible highs of House and Powers. I've covered it all here in my Crack and Krakoa series, where I review every X-Men comic the day of release and cover bigger topics, questions, and themes with weekend videos. For those who missed out and are looking to get into X-Men in 2021, or just want to recap what happened, this video will cover off on what I remember as the most important moments in the X-Men comics of 2020, with some thoughts on the relevance for anticipated or uh, you know, predicted stories in 2021. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to Crack and Krakoa, number 139. If you like the Comic Book Herald YouTube channel or Crack and Krakoa, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. You can find full X-Men and comic book reading orders over on ComicBookHerald.com. And spoilers for Discuss Comics. Again, I'll be talking about the entire year, the 2020, that X-Men had. There will be some spoilers for events that happened in those uh, in these you know this review. Number 11 on my list. I'm going to go through the top 11. Mutants going into the vault. Kicking things off with the saga of the X-Men versus the children of the vault, since this storyline is upcoming in X-Men number 18, scheduled for release February 2021. What was the story so far in 2020? Well, in X-Men number one, Jonathan Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu tease the return of the Mike Carey written creation, the technologically evolved children of the vault, who believe themselves the rightful inheritors of Earth. And then in 2020's X-Men number five, the hunt for the children and their vault led to an X-Men infiltration scheme involving Laura Kinney, Wolverine, Sink, and Darwin. As I've highlighted a bunch during this plan, Professor X calls the children of the vault the greatest threat to mutant kind, which again is very, very heavy language considering that we know mutants are facing off against threats like the Nimrod Sentinel entity, which, you know, in the Powers timeline that we saw in Powers of X is clearly, clearly the biggest threat that mutant kind had faced. Now, since this infiltration, which we saw as readers in very early 2020, we haven't heard hide nor hair of these three mutants who went into the vault or the vault itself. To add to the intrigue, we know that time passes differently in the vault and that spending an hour inside the vault might mean days, months, even years in the outside world. So when Laura, Sink, and Darwin return to the X-Men, assuming all of them do return, they'll have been gone for a fairly unpredictable amount of years, most likely. So where's this story going? Again, we know from solicits we'll get a return story in X-Men number 18, and Laura and Sink are teased on the What's to Come Reign of X teaser promo for the year. This will be very interesting to see what did Wolverine, Sink, and potentially Darwin learn inside the vault, and what are they going to tell the X-Men. This is coming very, very soon. So again, if you kind of want to get caught up on the story so far, again, it's the Hickman written issues of X-Men, specifically issue number one and number five. And then I would highly recommend you check out the Mike Carey written run of X-Men as well. Uh, you can find a Crack and Kruko video on the whole run if that's more your speed too, but that will give you a very good feel for what the Children of the Vault are meant to be. 
Number 10 on my list, The Scarlet Witch Seeks Forgiveness. What's the story so far? Well, since House of X number one, Hickman and company have established a clear priority of Wanda Maximoff, aka The Scarlet Witch, as a new boogeyman and one of the forsworn enemies of Krakoa, with her actions during Marvel's House of M in Decimation and her subsequent 2015 retcon removing her mutant status, leading to her new X-Men era label as The Great pretender okay she was someone who now according to mutant kind pretended to be a mutant for a long time and not only that but led to the decimation of the depowering of nearly one million mutants okay so she's not literally enemy number one because the genosha event led to 16.5 million mutants dead uh, but wanda is right underneath that so in 2020 there were two fairly short but both essential additions to scarlet witch's place in the mutant narrative the first came during the first and fourth issues of the empire X-Men miniseries, both written by Jonathan Hickman, where Wanda sets out to atone for her crimes against mutantkind, depowering nearly a million mutants with three words, in House of M, no more mutants. Wanda attempts to use her mystical prowess in the aid of Doctor Strange to resurrect the mutants in the leading mutant catastrophe this millennium, the Genosha genocide caused by Cassandra Nova and the Trask Sentinels. Despite Strange's warnings against this approach, Wanda maintains her course, only to see her spell go awry, resurrecting the deceased Genosha mutant as corrupted zombies, which she and Steven probably have to undo, but not before the mutants, the invading Empire Kotati, and those resurrected zombies all clash in a very fun miniseries. Most recently in Sword Number 1, Al Ewing and team also introduced the thread that Krakoa's vilification of Wanda has cosmic alliance implications. Since Wanda is now the official mother-in-law of Teddy Altman, aka Hulkling, aka the King of Space, and the leader of the newly solidified Kree Skull Empire. This quick sequence was fascinating, like all of Sword Number 1, both because it solidifies Wanda as a political inconvenience for the mutant space program, and because the information was delivered to longtime father, first-time peak visitor Magneto, who of course very, very very quietly, and I love the lettering on this, says, ah yes, Wanda, the pretender. Does he believe it though? Where's this going? Unquestionably, Mutantkind's relationship to Wanda Maximoff and her role in Decimation will be discussed in the pages of Sword. Allie Ewing uh, confirmed as much in his most recent Adventures in Poor Taste interview. This could be as simple as a reluctant formal pause to the chilly hostilities, or even something more interesting like fully integrating Wanda as a Sword liaison. While her power set does actually seem like something that could benefit the program, welcoming the Great Pretender feels pretty unlikely to me uh, as, as an actual status quo change. I do also have a broader theory. I started teasing out during my reread of X-Men Inferno, the 1989 X-Men event, and I did a cracking co on this where I mention it. It's not really textually connected to everything I've just described, but I kind of love it all the same. Now, I may do a bigger, a much bigger video sort of fleshing out this theory, but the general idea is if we're going to do an Inferno 2.0 in this era of X-Men, I actually think setting it up where Mr. Sinister, you know, in the, in the original Inferno, it's all about sort of the secrets of Sinister's schemes with Cyclops and with Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey, I think you could do a similar thing, but with Wanda Maximoff and, and Pietro and their mutant status. And again, it's like you have the living retcon engine, Mr. Sinister, and then you have Wanda and Pietro's mutant status, which has been changed so significantly. Why leave it to the high evolutionary, right? Why could Mr. Sinister have been involved there? I think it's a possibility for an Inferno 2.0 setup that would actually make a lot of sense. But again, maybe that's a story for another time. Number nine on my list, The World of 
of Storm. What's the story so far? In the pages of the Jonathan Hickman written Giant Size X-Men, we learn that Storm was infected by the children of the vault during the aforementioned X-Men number five and was given 30 days to live. So she enlisted the aid of Phantom X, Cypher, Monet, and an Aim Henchy to enter the World Facility, a Weapon Plus program creation, and rid herself of this virus. The process was successful, meaning two things. One, Storm resists resurrection, which could be meaningful if any ill effects or tampering are revealed in the mutant resurrection process. Again, they have conquered death, but could there be side effects? Storm could be somebody who actually, uh, you know, does not succumb to that. And two, some new seemingly sentient intelligence was created in the process of resurrecting or of saving Storm in the world. And perhaps this is really only known to Doug Ramsey exactly what this entails. Shortly thereafter, Storm was included as one of the storm bearers of Krakoa during Ten of Swords, putting her in the position of obtaining Wakanda's hallowed Skybreaker sword. During Marauders number 13, Storm breaks many of her long-standing ties to Wakanda, where she was once queen, by stealing the sword, battling the Wakandan guard and Shuri, and generally making it known that she is far and away mutant first. The relationship between Krakoa and Wakanda continues to be very interesting, as Wakanda is one of the handful of nations that do not accept Krakoan medicines, but they are the only nation that refuses the drug on the basis that, in quotes, they do not need them. Storm's former marriage to T'Challa and connections to Wakanda were one of the primary connections suggesting an alliance between the nations, but the actions of Ten of Swords do, sort of, put that in doubt. Although, again, if you followed the Storm T'Challa relationship over the years, I suspect this is something they can overcome as well. Where's all this going? Well, the what of Storm's 2020 is comparatively minor. You know, she didn't actually go through a ton, but it matters more because of the character's clear major relevance in 2021. First, we heard from X-Men group editor Jordan D. White that Storm has a major story coming in 2021 and that the story will be so huge that there will be no question about it if, you know, if that was the Storm story when it happens. Like, we're gonna know. Next, Storm is front and center on the Reign of X teaser, holding what was until Sword Number 1 a mysterious-looking shiny artifact. It would now appear that Storm is holding a piece of the Mysterium introduced in the pages of Sword, suggesting to me... The potential for a reality-warping, altering, multiverse-traveling role for Storm throughout 2021. Could she be heading up a new Exiles, for example? I think that would be super thrilling. Couple that with the Ten of Swords teaser that Storm is setting her sights to the stars, and I'm all in on the likelihood of an ongoing Storm series showcasing her new role, traversing the cosmos for mutant kind. Number eight on my list, the future Doom Wars in Franklin Richards. What's the story so far? The saga of Franklin Richards got the most attention, so we'll start there. In House of X number one, Franklin is listed as the only Omega-level mutant allied with humankind, and Cyclops makes a point of inviting the son of Sue and Reed Richards to Krakoa when Franklin's ready. In the Chip Zdarsky and the Dodsons 4-issue X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries, a whole load of poor communication and hostilities ultimately leads to Franklin spending time learning and visiting on Krakoa, while still living at home with his fantastic family. And most critically, in Fantastic Four number 25, the Dan Slott-written comic declares, for now, that Franklin is in fact not a mutant at all, and that he only convinced himself and the world around him he was a mutant to try to seem more special. I've already said my piece on all the many problems that entails in a Kraken Krakoa video on the topic, so I won't do so again here, but suffice to say, it's not a super popular decision. 
The piece nobody is really talking about, though, is that at the conclusion of X-Men Fantastic Four, Doctor Doom, aka the greatest Marvel villain, basically promises a future war with mutant kind, after revealing in the mini that he has an island for experiments on Latverian mutants, as well as his own Doom brand Sentinels. Better yet, at the conclusion of Sword Number 1, there's a surprising quote from Victor, revealing he's keeping a close eye on the mutant space program, and still very much is involved in their future plans, right? Like Doom is watching, Doom is aware, okay? And he is also definitely resisting and I think sort of angry and kind of humiliated about the status that mutant kind has taken in this new status quo shift. So where's this going? I actually think there's two threads that could come together again in the X-Verse, especially if my theory is right that Dr. Doom is sending a hologram of Professor X to Franklin to convince him he's not a mutant in Fantastic Four number 25, as opposed to that actually, you know, not to go full Charles apologist, but the language is so careless and hurtful, it would work a lot better for me if it was one of Doom's schemes to get Franklin and his powers on his side. I think that makes a lot more sense, actually. As for the Doom Wars, remember, he is seeking to prove superiority to mutant kind and again in many ways was humiliated by professor x and company he already has doom brand sentinels of course he does he's experimenting on latvarian mutants he's trying to figure out what is the next stage of human evolution and technology could doom form an alliance with the children of the vault they're very much up his alley i think in terms of what he's looking for for evolution of power sets of, of mutant kind or of humankind rather and again when you think of doom like what is his thing He's always looking for ways to achieve more power, whether that's getting the Silver Surfer's power cosmic way back in the Stan and Jack Fantastic Four, or like even in 84 Secret Wars, stealing the power of the Beyonder, stealing the powers of the Vault, stealing that sort of human-based uh, techno technology evolution could be exactly what Doom is looking for. That would be a really interesting alliance moving forward. Number seven on the, the most important Dawn of X moments, uh, Mr. Sinister Schemes. What's the story so far? I, I'll admit, this is partially an excuse to rave about the excellence of Hellions, my favorite comic in the X-Men line through 2020, or even just Sinister's funniest moments, which could fill out an entire list of their own. Nonetheless, Mr. Sinister has unquestionably been one of the top five most interesting characters in the Hickman era of X-Men, and all of his scheming this year inevitably means a lot for where the world of mutants is heading in the future. The most recent development for Mr. Nathaniel came during Ten of Swords, when Sinister and his Hellions captured the mutant DNA of Tarn the Uncaring and his Locus Vile during their trek to Araco slash Amanth slash I can't even keep it straight anymore without researching it every single time. We've seen Sinister's mutant clone operations are alive and well in his secret Kirkoan labs, and he's offered the likes of Jamie Braddock a backup clone on file, but this DNA haul gives Sinister the opportunity to play with mutant DNA from new realms, which of course may possess new properties and perhaps even move Sinister closer to his inevitable Chimera experiments of merging mutant DNA that we learned about in Powers of Ten. Where's it going? Well, one of the biggest surprises of the Reign of X teaser promo was Tarn the Uncaring's lurking face in the corner. Given the state of Araco and its mutant inhabitants after Ten of Swords, which we will talk about a little more thoroughly in a minute, I think we can pretty fully expect a confrontation between Tarn and Sinister in 2021. Or, given Tarn's mirror image to Sinister, kind of the Araco version of Sinister, it might be even more likely that they form a mad scientist cabal. Beast is going to be so mad if they don't invite him, and perhaps they should. And again, maybe they perfect mutant chimeras together. I think that would actually be the most interesting thing to me, to form this sort of evil mad scientist club between Mr. Sinister and Tarn, and then again, let's bring Hank in 
because uh, who are we kidding? He totally fits in this club as well. Number six on the list, the development of Crucible. What's the story so far? In X-Men number seven, we're introduced to Krakoa's plan for restoring depowered mutants, the arena of the Crucible, a symbolic Roman Colosseum-style battle, initially a sword fight with Apocalypse, to prove your desire to live as a mutant. Crucible is important as a development of mutant culture, a statement on what it means to be mutant, and a clear mandate on questions around, you know, quote-unquote, cheap, quick resurrection, especially in cases of suicide for the purposes of resurrection. Likewise, Crucible answers those questions about the mutant plan for the mutants impacted by Scarlet Witch's decimation. It's an interesting thing to look at, like, who are the mutants who are still depowered, who are still living that life because of Scarlet Witch's actions, and what can we do to bring them back with their power sets? Where is it going? Well, after the highly memorable Crucible you know, issue in X-Men number 7, the post-Ten of Swords landscape means Apocalypse won't be running these proceedings anymore, although the ritual itself could go on you know, relatively unchanged. While there are a handful of mutants that could certainly take Apocalypse's place, assuming it was always going to be him anyway, my pick is New Island friend Iska the Unbeaten, Apocalypse's sister-in-law, although if you read X-Men number 16, that is perhaps fairly unlikely. We're also going to see a lot more with the problem Cyclops and Kurt, aka Nightcrawler, discussed regarding requested changes via resurrection. This is a big idea that has come up a number of times where, like, what if mutants want to be resurrected with different power sets or basically with added powers? You know, why not resurrect them all with Omega-level power sets? That's going to continue coming up as we talk about not only Crucible, but just the general practice of mutant resurrection. Number five, on the developments of 2020, Sword, the mutant space program. What is the story so far? Well, Ten of Swords led to a repowered peak, the longtime headquarters of Sword, completely devoid of human operators thanks to Avis Scora's alien invasion. Combined with the recent departure of Abigail Brand from the Alpha Flight Earth Defense Program, and you have a perfect recipe for a new mutant space program as mutant kind looks to expand to the cosmic Marvel galaxy. The first issue of this series by Al Ewing, Valerio Shidi, Marty Gracia, and Ariana Maher is one of my absolute favorites since House Powers and does an incredible amount of building to lay out what a mutant future looks like integrated into the grander Marvel space age. The issue is highly recommended, or at least my full video review, you know, if you want to go that route, but if nothing else, the main takeaways for me are, one, mutants are establishing diplomatic relationships with major alien civilizations, such as the new Kree Skrull Empire, and two, mutant exploration into multiversal travel, seeking out some of the largest cosmic artifacts in the entire Marvel Universe. Where's it going? Well, anywhere and everywhere, honestly. My primary sword theories are, one, Mysterium is connected to the Project Pegasus and Squadron Supreme character Dr. Kyle Leitner, who has alternate dimension hopping powers, which means harnessing his powers in refined Mysterium crystals will offer X-Men the same opportunities, meaning we're going multiverse hunting and likely expanding mutant numbers that way. Again, I think a Storm-led Exile series could be a main, main takeaway that I will be pulling day one, no questions asked. Number two, mutants will form massive alliances across the galaxy with the likes of Shi'ar, Brood, Vescora, and who knows who else, preparing for an inevitable conflict with the powered beings of Earth, the Kree Skrull, and others on their side. I think this is how the X-Men will conquer the galaxy, and again, the theme of Reign of X, as we go from Dawn of X to Reign of X, the theme has changed from foundation to expansion, and expanding into space and the Marvel Cosmos is a huge way that is going to happen. Number four on my list, 
a, a smaller moment, but a massive one in terms of impact, Kate's kiss, Kate Pride's kiss. What's the story so far? To put it reductively, Kate Pride kissed a girl, and she did indeed like it. The longtime subtextually queer character had her first on-page kiss with the girl, making her bisexuality canon. I've talked extensively on Cracking for Co. why this matters, and I would highly recommend checking out my video, Why Sexuality Matters in X-Men Comics, for the more detailed answer. But simply put, it's a tremendously positive step for queer representation in X-Men Comics, and a move that means so much to a wide variety of readers who've been underrepresented for decades. Where's it going? Well, ideally, it's just going to become a casually meaningful part of Kate's identity, referenced through her story where it fits, and not an incident that happens one time for publicity and is forgotten. Already, we've seen Kate just continue to function as this character that we really enjoy in the pages of Marauder, getting her revenge on Sebastian Shaw with Emma Frost in their sort of Hellfire trinity, essentially, of, of leading you know the Hellfire Club and operating on Krakoa's Quiet Council. So it'll be interesting to see the developments of Kate in the future, but again, I hope this is a thread that is continued into the Reign of X. Three, Brew. King of the Brood. What's the story so far? Well, a uh, brew, wee genius, brood mutant, snappy dresser, and all-around great guy, he ate a brood king egg, and now he's king of the brood. There's plenty that builds to this moment, the new mutants stealing the king egg during the Hickman-written issues of the title, the brood invasion of Krakoa in X-Men number 8, but nothing tops the fact that longtime X-Men ally, Brew, is now one of the most potentially powerful leaders in the entire galaxy. Again, the Brood have been a longtime enemy of the X-Men. You know, they are considered um, they are considered enemies <laughs> because they they root into mutants, they like their power sets, and then they, you know, essentially they are body snatchers, alien, you know, body snatching alien race. And now Brew, the one version of the Brood with the kind of empathy that that allowed him to establish an alliance, he's now their leader. So what does that mean for the X-Men and the Brood moving forward? Well, where's it going? This ties heavily into my theories discussed for Sword in the upcoming Galaxy of X-Men. Brew as King of the Brood potentially inverts the familiar Brood vs. X-Men narrative and instead makes the Brood an alien civilization in an alliance with mutant kind. Again, everything in this era of X-Men is about breaking all the rules and establishing mutant survival and dominance well into the future. Let's back that up for a second. An army of Brood is a huge step in that direction. One thing I do like to call out here, though, is that we haven't actually seen any evidence of a Brood X-Men alliance, right? It's virtually all an assumptive prediction at this point, and we can't rule out that Brew leading the Brood will not work out exactly according to Krakoa's favor, okay? So there are a lot of details to be worked out. Again, kind of if you've read X-Men number 16 at this point, the the first uh, post-Ten of Swords issue, you know, that kind of deals with what we're going to talk about in a second, the merger of Krakoa and Arako. The assumption that these things are going to work out exactly as mutants expect, there are, are often, often challenges, and we might see that with Brood and the Brood as well. So number two on my list, it is, in fact, Ten of Swords. What is the story so far? Well, Ten of Swords was the first first post-House Powers X event, a 22-part mega crossover across every single title in the X-Men comics line. At its core, Ten of Swords is a follow-up to the history of Okara, the One Land, Krakoa, and Arako as presented in House of X number 5, as well as an expansion of Apocalypse's role in that history and what it means for one of Krakoa's oldest and most powerful mutants. I'm not going to summarize the whole event because it's huge, and I covered every issue on here on Kraken Krakoa, but the major outcomes after the Arako vs. Krakoa tournament are 1. Apocalypse is reunited with his family in the dimension of Amanth. 2. 
Arako should be reunited with Krakoa, and not only are the two halves of land getting back together, but all the mutants living in each region should be joining up as well. Three, the resurrections of Rockslide and Gorgon are totally effed up because they died in Otherworld. Four, Krakoa's Quiet Council is shaken up, and the 12-seat governing body now has two open chairs. And five, there's now an apparently an all-mutant Betsy Braddock-based Captain Britain Corps, which is another huge expansion of mutant ranks as well. Where's this going? Honestly, most of the post-Tennis Swords outcome is still to be resolved, despite a month-plus of comics released after the final issue. First and foremost, I'm extremely interested in seeing how Kirko and Arako merge together, and what the plans are for all these new mutants welcomed into the nation. Again, or will they be? There are a lot of really great new mutants added to the X-Men mythos in this event, Iska the Unbeaten, Solemn, Bay the Blood Moon, and I'm excited to see their roles in the mutant nation of Earth as well. Now, again, as we saw in X-Men number 16, this will not be so simple, okay? The merger of Krakoa and Arako is not going exactly as planned. The the mutants of Arako, you know, including Iska the Unbeaten, who we see here, they have their own government. They have their own power set. And they've been at war with this demon hordes of Amenth for, for thousands and thousands of years, okay? So they are not just going to happily join hands with the X-Men and say, yeah, cool, we're totally on board with you. They have their own principles and things that will need to be worked out in terms of how these islands of mutants actually work together. And, you know, one thing, that came up in X-Men number 16, which I'll mention here, there are 20 times more mutants on Arako than there are on Krakoa, okay? So in terms of numbers, they're a much bigger mutant stronghold. The number one moment, though, in 2020, Dawn of X, Mystique, Destiny, and Nimrod. What's the story so far? Well, in X-Men number 6, follows up on Mystique's role during House of X number 4. The mutants' mission to destroy the Orcus Mothermold facility they determined would be responsible for bringing a Nimrod online and setting mutant kind on a course towards extinction. The issue reveals that while infiltrating, Mystique had a secret mission to set up a stealth Krakoan gateway on the facility, which is currently in use as Mystique pretends to work for Orcus and pick up information about their plans. Her most recent report is a huge deal, telling Magneto and Professor X that Orcus still appears to be close to activating a Nimrod. Essentially, Mystique is being toyed with, as Professor X and Magneto are holding the resurrection of her wife, Destiny, over her head as leverage to get her to comply with their continued every wish. This is, of course, to follow Moira's no-precogs rule, and will, of course, come back to bite them all. Where's it going? Before her death, Destiny told Mystique that if Krakoa wouldn't bring her back, she didn't know the specifics to call it Krakoa in the prophecy, but still, Mystique should burn it all down. I honestly don't know what Charlie and Magneto think is going to happen as they continue pushing Mystique further and further over the edge, but clearly she's going to strike out sooner than later as revenge slash retribution for withholding the one thing she wants in this supposed mutant paradise. It makes me wonder if Moira's no precogs allowed on Krakoa rule is a self-fulfilling prophecy, as the through fearing precognitive abilities on Krakoa and denying Destiny her resurrection, Moira ensures that Destiny's previous predictions push Mystique to burn it all down. Other options here too, I mean, so Mystique has leverage in terms of being the one who kind of sees and knows about the rebuilding of the Nimrod, which is a huge, huge threat to mutant kind. And then as well, what if the joining now of Arako offers Mystique sort of an alternate mutant stronghold where can, she can be with Destiny happily, where they are not worried about precognitive abilities because Idol, one of the uh, one of the the mutants on the ring on the council essentially of Araku is a precog themselves. So this is something where we could see Mystique maybe maybe she betrays Krakoa for Araku and that's where Mystique finds her happiness. 
And of course, there's so much more with honorable mentions throughout 2020 to Beast's Casual Genocide, Vampire Nation developments, Hellfire Club machinations in the Pages and Marauders, then you have the threat of Zeno with the Cerebro Sword, with Mikhail Rasputin, Quinn Choir, everything that's going on there. Of course, there are many, many more comics and many, many more stories. If you want to read them all, I would recommend checking out the complete Hickman X-Men reading order on comicbookherald.com. Plus, we've got an X-Men election coming up as per the pages of the most recently released X-Men number 16, which will be super exciting about where things are going in 2021 as well. But hopefully this gives you a good sort of primer on the biggest moments in X-Men in 2020. Again, it's not by any measure comprehensive, but it is some of the biggest stuff that I think will be the most meaningful moving forward. So thanks everybody for listening. As always, I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com. In particular, I'd like to thank those individuals who are supporting Comic Book Herald on patreon.com slash comicbookherald. If you do this uh, for as little as $1 a month, you can support Comic Book Herald endeavors and get some cool benefits and bonuses. For those in the Mysterious Benefactors tier, thank you very much for your generous support. You do get your name read on these videos. Thank you, Jesse W., Professor Pride, Cole Weathers, Martin Lopez, Chris Isidro, Brent Bowser, Professor X3769, PD Appleseed, Ver Similitude, Terranort, Ed McKay, Clyde DeGlide, Pinball Drew, Mike Solomons, and Matt Mahoney. Thank you all very much for your generous support of Comic Book Herald. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald on social. Look for the best comics ever in my Marvelous Year podcast for more from me. But that's going to do it on the 2020 Dawn of X recap. Again, if you want to check out like reviews of every X-Men comic as they're coming out in 2021, subscribe here to the Comic Book channel and check out Crack and Krakoa because that is what I will be doing. And then, of course, with weekend videos, exploring themes or big ideas as I go through them. If you want these in podcast form, uh, the best way to do that is you can get some uh, just via the Best Comics Ever podcast. But if you want all the reviews via podcast form, you will need to, or not need to, but it would be great if you go over to patreon.com slash comicbookherald, I will release all the reviews there as podcasts as well. So thanks all for listening. Uh, this was fun to do. It was fun to cover X-Men with you, and I want to hear your theories and comments here uh, on the video. But in the meantime, enjoy the comics.